Hi, I'm Kevin Giovanoni, Professor of Neurology at uh, Bath and London School of Medicine and Dentistry. And in this MSLF newsletter and podcast, I present an argument for why we need to consider including brain volume uh, measurements in clinical practice. Uh, this particular case study is a very simple one. Uh, a patient with multiple sclerosis asks a neurologist um, if she could have information about her brain volume or whether or not she's having brain atrophy and he says she can't have the information because the neuroradiologists don't measure it and even if they did uh, it would be very difficult to make uh, use of this information uh, as part of the treatment decisions and this particular patient wants to know if I agree. Uh, yes and no and I say yes and no because I understand that brain volume measurements aren't currently part of routine clinical practice. Well not in every uh, practice. I'm aware of a handful of MS centers uh, across the world that do do regular brain volume measurements and use it as part of their clinical decision making. So it's not like this has not been used. It just depends where you are managed. Uh, and we would call those centers the innovators or early adopters uh, around this particular process. The problem we have with brain volume measurements when we do whole brain volume, the measurement is quite wobbly. It's quite variable. And so if you do a measurement today and then you repeat it tomorrow, there can be quite a big difference, up to 0.4%, which is kind of in the range uh, of what normal brain volume loss is in a normal person. So um, this, this variability makes it very difficult to use it in individual patients. Saying that, though, uh, if there is a large change, you know, 1% or 0.6% per annum, above the so-called variability gap, that is probably very meaningful. Uh, and that will obviously uh, identify people with m the most brain volume loss. Another issue is trajectories. Change over time is also important because that gets rid of the error over time or the variability over time. So if you've got serial measurements over three or four years showing a trajectory of uh, small changes but significant changes over time, it's probably highly significant. But what you also got to realize is brain volume loss occurring now is probably from inflammation or damage in the past. So it's like responding to brain volume loss is retrospective. In other words, it's already happened, the pathology, and you, it's too late to do anything about it. So you've got to try and think of brain volume or brain atrophy as something we're trying to prevent rather than measure and trying to change. Um, now, when you look at group differences, so in trials where you look at people on, say, one treatment versus another treatment or one treatment versus placebo, that is highly significant. The reason for that is those errors get averaged out on, on and so the differences between the groups is highly significant. So when one DMT is very effective at suppressing or slowing down brain volume loss, for example, alemtuzumab or autologous hemopoietic stem cell transplant, that is very meaningful compared to less effective therapies where the impact on brain volume loss is nowhere near uh, the same. So at a, a group level, uh, knowing what brain volume loss is in clinical trials is very important in helping, potentially helping you make a decision about which uh, therapy you want. <clears throat> I also make the point that um, our treatment target is evolving in multiple sclerosis and I was the question I've raised for this patient is, is she aware of what her treatment target is? Is her treatment target just to suppress inflammatory activity? In other words, stop her having relapses and new lesions on MRI scan? Or is it going beyond that to address things like brain volume loss?
And so we need to engage with that. Uh, and I highlight that when we actually um, uh, produced our, our brain health time matters uh, policy document, we actually knew that the target would evolve over time. And that's one of the reasons why we actually were quite ambitious with our target. And our aim was to try and maximize the lifelong brain health for every person with MS. In other words, we need to think beyond the now into the future. And our ambition is to get people with multiple sclerosis to old age with a healthy brain as possible. This is an important concept because what protects us from age-related cognitive decline, you know, when we get into our 60s, 70s and 80s, is the size of our brain. That's what we would call brain reserve. Uh, and our cognitive reserve, you know, how enriched, how deep um, uh, our synapses are that keep our brain healthy. And we know that multiple sclerosis reduces both the brain reserve, the brain size, and our cognitive reserve. So what's, what we're seeing now is uh, if MS is not treated very effectively, people get to old age uh, with a very unhealthy brain, and they age much, much earlier. And so this has to be our shift. We have to get people to, to uh, old age with a healthy brain as possible, which means effectively treating MS as effectively or aggressively as possible up front uh, to achieve that aim. Um, so one of the uh, issues I also get asked is, what happens if I uh, have accelerated brain volume loss, um, but my inflammatory activity is suppressed? Or switching me from, say, a lower efficacy DMT to a high efficacy one uh, impact on the future brain loss, brain volume loss. And I don't know the answer to that. And I give an example. Let's say you're on dimethyl fumarate, you've got no relapses, your MRI is stable, but you're losing brain volume at, say, 0.6% per annum, which is way above normal. The normal rate for a person over, eight, over 35 uh, is probably in the region of about 015 to 0.2% per annum. So this is like three times higher than the, the normal range. Uh, I don't know if switching that individual from dimethyl fumarate to, say, alemtuzumab or HHCT, the two agents with the biggest impact on brain volume, will, will change that trajectory. And uh, one of the th reasons for that is um, underlying uh, that person's pathology may be the so-called smoldering MS, those processes that drive a chronic slow burn uh, and slow loss of uh, nerves and, uh, and axons. Um, occasionally, we do um, switch patients like that. Um, you know, people may come to us with brain volume measurements, or the brain volume loss looks obvious when you look at their scans serially. Um, uh, you know, and I'm I'm not in a position to say you can't have a higher efficacy therapy. I'm just saying yes if you want to take the risks associated with that. But we have no idea if this is going to make any difference to your long-term trajectory because we just don't have clinical trial data on that. So this is one of the dilemmas we're in, a, a, what I would call an evidence-free space, and I think future trials are going to have to us to require us to do um, switching trials to see what happens to brain volume loss in people moving from so a lower efficacy plat platform therapy to a high efficacy uh, therapy to see if that shift uh, does impact on brain volume loss. It may do because we may have microscopic inflammation that we're not seeing on an MRI scan or not seeing clinically in relapses that drive some of that pathology, and that, that is a possibility. The other issue is that person may have quite a lot of smoldering pathology, uh, and I call it smoldering because uh, in the literature now there's a bit of confusion. Some people like to think of this as being progression independent of relapse activity, but that term PIRA 
is really uh, limited to what happens in clinical trials with a specific definition. Uh, we now know that uh, uh, People with more advanced or progressive disease, be it secondary or primary, have the same phenomenon. They get worse without superimposed inflammatory events, relapses or MRI activity. And they also have what we would call PERA. And then there's things like brain volume loss, retinal nerve fiber layer thickening, uh, subtle cognitive decline. There are lots of things that happen that aren't captured by the metric of PERA, which is why I prefer the term smoldering MS, uh, which goes way beyond uh, simply um, the term PERA. Anyway, read um, the newsletter. Um, I go through all the subtle issues. Uh, I'm not giving up on brain volume loss. You know, one of the things we realize is the technologies are evolving very rapidly. There's new algorithms coming. There's artificial intelligence, deep learning, and we may work out a way to get overcome this variability associated with the measurement. Um, and also, we may be able to do regional measurements. For example, the surface of the brain, the cortical gray matter is less susceptible to, say, day-to-day -day variation or inflammation, uh, swelling due to inflammation. And the variability around gray matter measurements may be much more unusive to using it uh, in routine clinical practice. So I do see us uh, in the future uh, having some metric that uh, predicts brain volume uh, or measures brain volume loss or brain atrophy um, that we could use in clinical practice. Uh, we actually, uh, Professor Klaus Schmier in our group is setting up a collaboration with one of the tech companies uh, and there's a grant application going through now to actually do this in clinical practice and for us to have this information. How this information will affect clinical practice is slightly unknown at the moment, but I know from previous experience, once you get a biomarker into clinical practice and you see it on an annual basis, that often affects behavior. So I don't think I've addressed this uh, patient's question adequately. You know, but I hope this newsletter provides some context uh, into this thorny issue of brain volume loss in MS and our need to use it in clinical practice. Um, I hope it also nudges you to engage with your annual MRI scan results. You should actually ask your healthcare professional to tell you what's happened to your lesion count or volume over the last 12 months. And if you are getting serial scans over many years, ask them what's happening to your brain volume. Uh, is it going down or isn't it going down? Um, I also mentioned in the newsletter a, a new metric. I was at a presentation this week, actually, where a tech company pre presented uh, data on a new algorithm where they can actually take your brain scan, your MRI scan, and put it through an algorithm, and it gives you what I, they call a brain age relative to the population. And surprise, surprise, people with multiple sclerosis have uh, an older brain age than their bio biological age simply because they have lost brain volume and they've got evidence of damage on their scan and that kind of brain age is a, a metric of how bad your brain is in terms of aging uh, and one of the questions I uh, uh, would want to ask from you is would you want to know your brain age your so-called bi biological brain age and would you want to know how different it is from your chronological age because that information may not be actionable it's just telling you that you've lost brain from your multiple sclerosis and as I've said in this newsletter at the moment we don't have any therapies to reverse that process and we hopefully can protect your brain from future damage by having you on effective DMTs and doing all the other things we do in terms of optim optimizing your brain health but we can't do th anything for 
for brain volume that's been lost in the past at this point in time. So I'm not sure that information would be helpful for individuals with MS. They may find it very depressing and I wouldn't mind having a discussion about that, about that issue. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, um, I do provide one little reference there for you to read about how predictive brain volume loss is for future prognosis. Um, and unfortunately, it is a poor prognostic science. So if you have a, uh, really have brain volume loss, it predicts uh, a worse course in the future. Uh, in other words, damage begets damage uh, in multiple sclerosis. Um, finally, if you are a subscriber, thank you very much. If you're not a subscriber and can afford to, I'd urge you to help support the MSLF initiative. I am using the funds raised by subscriptions and, and donations if you don't feel like you want to subscribe um, to develop a uh, microsite where this information will all be curated in an easy to find uh, uh, manner. And I must say the uh, uh, website's well on its way to being launched. We hope to get it on, uh, uh, off the ground in, uh, in late, at the end of summer, to be honest with you. Um, but I have hired a medical writer and uh, a website designer and it's looking very, very good. Thank you very much for those who really contributed this. I uh, really appreciate it. Enjoy.